This episode contains details involving the murder of a young child and may be distressing for some. Listener discretion is advised. 13-month-old Zachary Andrew Turner was left in the care of his mother, and it feels like that there were a million reasons why he never should have been, why we, the rest of the world, should never have come to know Zachary, and why we should have never been here talking about him today. Welcome back to the tale of Losing Andrew, Losing Zachary, a California Dreaming multi-part series. If you haven't listened to part one, pause this here, then listen to episode 134 first, and then come back to this. In part one, we went through the timeline of Shirley Turner's life, from her early life through about 2000. We are going to pick it up from there. And again, I retrieved this information from the Turner Review and Investigation from September of 2006 by the Newfoundland and Labrador Child and Youth Advocates Delegate. Kathleen Daphne Bernard, a registered nurse from Chatham, England, emigrated to the United States in October of 1967. It was then that she met David Franklin Bagby. He was born in Kansas City, Missouri, but was stationed in Long Beach, California, while in the Navy from 1964 to 1968. They would get married on March 29, 1968, and settled down initially in Compton, California. They moved to San Diego in 1971, and then to San Jose in 1977, and eventually would end up in Sunnydale, California, a suburb of San Jose, moving there in 1978. After Kathleen and David were wed, she completed her studies, earning a bachelor's degree in nursing from UC San Diego in 1976, and then a master's in nursing from UC San Francisco in 1981. Since her time in England and then in California, Kathleen had been a midwife and an OBGYN nurse and a nurse practitioner. David graduated with a bachelor's in electrical engineering from Cal State Long Beach in 1971 and a master's in electrical engineering from Cal State San Diego in 1975. He was a computer engineer and also a technical writer. So the couple were very, very career-driven. During their time in San Diego, Kathleen and David had a son, Andrew David Bagby, born September 25, 1973. He would be the couple's only child. And he, like his parents, would pursue higher education, earning his bachelor's in biological sciences from UC Irvine in 1995. After he graduated from Irvine, Andrew spent a year working as a researcher at Stanford University. And by the summer of 1996, he decided to pursue a career in medicine. Andrew attended medical school from September of 1996 through May of 2000 at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. As a requirement in his third and fourth years of the program, Andrew needed to do clinical clerkships in a number of both mandatory and elective disciplines ranging anywhere from one to three months at a time. He did some of his clerkships in Newfoundland and some in other provinces. Going back a little bit, while Andrew was in middle school in California, he met a girl who would eventually become his fiance. Her name is Dr. Heather Arnold. It was while she was engaged to him that she, by chance, happened to choose Memorial University as one of the many schools that Andrew had planned on applying for admissions to attend medical school. She made the suggestion for some reason. She'd never seen it or been there, but Andrew applied and he was accepted. In the summer of 1996, Heather went with Andrew to St. John's, where he began his studies that September. While there, she began her undergraduate studies. 
When her school year ended, it was a short time before medical school would end for the year, so she traveled back to California. He did the same once his studies were done, and it was during the summer of 1997 in California that the couple's relationship fell apart and their engagement ended. Andrew was devastated by the breakup. Heather remained friends with him and continued to be friends with him and is friends with his parents to this day. Even after their engagement ended in 1997, Andrew still reached out to Heather and helped her along as she was having a budding interest in working in medicine as well. And she credits him with helping her choose her path in life. Heather would begin her first year of medical school at Memorial University also in 1999, at which time she became acquainted with Shirley Turner, who was in her second year of her residency. And Heather said that their working relationship was a roller coaster. There were somewhat amicable times, and others, Shirley was filled with vitriol as her moods tended to fluctuate wildly. So as I said in the previous episode, Andrew and Shirley met sometime in the spring of 1999 as he was about to finish up his third year of medical school and she was in her second year of residency. The two began a romantic relationship in May of 1999. During the course of their relationship, they traveled to San Francisco in the fall of 1999 and some say that they went to London, England in November of 2000, but that hasn't been confirmed. And just an example, a small example of the kind of person Andrew was, when Shirley's youngest daughter, who was 10 years old at the time, came to visit her in the spring of 2000, Andrew dressed up as the Easter Bunny, especially for her daughter. Andrew Bagby became Dr. Andrew Bagby when he graduated with his degree in medicine in May of 2000. Shirley attended his graduation, as well as related events and festivities in St. John. Before Shirley was set to leave Newfoundland in the late summer of 2000 to begin practicing medicine in the United States, she gave her son a computer that had been owned by Andrew, of which she said she had Andrew's permission to do so. She also left her son her car. So Andrew's parents had planned a few celebrations of their own for Andrew's graduation from medical school. They invited Heather to all of these events, but Shirley took a major issue with that. She did not understand why Andrew and Heather needed to stay friends. On the day that Andrew graduated, Shirley asked Heather into another room at the medical school where Shirley became very angry and started making allegations against her, saying things like, you could try all you want, he doesn't want you. But at the time, Heather was already involved with another man. And eventually, it's believed that Shirley realized that she wasn't trying to get back with Andrew, like she had thought she was. And just as I had alluded to a little while ago, Shirley had decided that she did not want to practice medicine in Newfoundland. In December of 1999, she came to terms with Trimark Physicians Corporation in Fort Dodge, Iowa, to practice in Sac City, Iowa, starting September 1st, 2000, where she was offered a salary of a little more than $171,000 a year. And Sac City, Iowa is a very small town, with its biggest draw being the home of the world's largest popcorn ball. At this time, while Shirley is headed to Sac City, Andrew was making arrangements to begin his residency in Syracuse, New York. Shirley and Andrew left Newfoundland at the same time, but intended to continue their relationship despite the distance. For the remainder of their relationship, which was about 14 months, they remained living about 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers apart. In August of 2000, Shirley left her children behind in Newfoundland and moved to Sac City. In July of 2000, Andrew found a place in Syracuse to live and became a surgical resident at New York State University. From 2000 to 2001, Shirley visited Andrew in Syracuse seven times, and he visited her in Sac City once. 
Since she was making much more money than Andrew, she paid for almost all of the travel expenses. And I just want to note right here that being in the surgical resident at New York State University, Andrew quickly realized that this was not what he wanted to be doing. He would change his focus during his second year of residency. So I want to talk more about one of Shirley's visits to Andrew, one that took place on May 29th of 2001 and the days leading up to that day. Shirley had been visiting for a few days, staying at Andrew's apartment in Syracuse. It was just the two of them. It was a secure building. You need codes to enter. The place was pretty safe. It wasn't easy to get into if you don't know the codes or didn't have anybody to buzz you in. So on that day, May 29th, Andrew left around 6 in the morning to go to work. Shirley was scheduled to leave that day for her drive back to Sac City. She left his place a little more than two hours after he did, around 8.15 that morning. But when she did leave, she left the front door to his apartment unlocked. She called him and she told him that she closed the door but forgot to lock it. Nobody was expecting to come by. Andrew had his keys with him, so he didn't ask her to leave it open, and she claimed it was inadvertent. So when Andrew got home that evening around 6.30, at first he didn't think that anything was wrong. The place looked like he had left it, for the most part. Nothing seemed disturbed, like nobody came in and ransacked the whole place. But it wasn't long before he started to notice that some of his belongings were gone. His laptop, along with its carrying case, some of his DVDs and CDs, a cigarette lighter, a Palm Pilot, and a checkbook. Andrew called the police to report the burglary, and the Syracuse police in turn called the Sac City police. They called Shirley and asked about Andrew's missing things. However, she denied taking anything from his place. No other apartments had been burglarized. None of the doors and locks in the building had been tampered with. And no criminal charges were ever filed against anyone. During the time Shirley was working and living in Sac City, she made arrangements for her three children to come to Iowa in December of 2000. And from there, they went with her to California to visit Andrew's mom and dad in Sunnydale. However, when the kids were making the trip, Shirley's 18-year-old son at the time and her youngest daughter, who was 10, traveled from Newfoundland to Toronto, where they met Shirley's 15-year-old daughter. Remember, she lived in Ontario with her boyfriend. Well, the kids missed their flight from Toronto to the United States and ended up staying an extra night in a hotel and flying the next day. And this apparently led to a fight between Shirley and her 15-year-old where Shirley slapped her across the face. On a side note, Shirley was never generous with money, but while she was in Sac City, she had given her son $700 and each of her two daughters $300. A little less than two months shy of completing a year on the job in Sac City, Shirley resigned on July 10, 2001. This was way sooner than Trimark Corporation had expected, as Shirley had signed a 10-year contract. Upon her resignation, she needed to pay back more than $155,000. And with that resignation, Shirley relocated 117 miles or 188 kilometers to Council Bluffs, Iowa, which is the largest city in southwest Iowa, so much, much bigger than Sac City. She found an apartment and got a position with the family practice and was hired on October 1st, 2001. However, she would have to wait for her license and hospital privileges to kick in, which would not take place until November 5th, 2001. So until then, Shirley was free to do whatever she wanted or needed to do. She was not going to be able to start practicing medicine until that date. Meanwhile, Andrew finished up his time at New York State University, Syracuse, in May of 2001, 
and began his family practice residency at a hospital in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, located about 45 miles or 72 kilometers east of Pittsburgh. A part of his residency included him working in Salzburg as well, about 16 miles or 25 kilometers north of Latrobe. In between these two cities lays Keystone Park. It's closer to Latrobe than Salzburg, however. Keystone Park will become a key location later on in this story. So at this point, we are in the summer of 2001, heading into the fall. Andrew and Shirley are still in a relationship, at least on the surface, though it started to become a little bit shaky on Andrew's end. It might have been because of the robbery and his suspicions of Shirley, but he's just always said that he was growing tired of the distance. I've also wondered why Shirley so abruptly resigned from her position at the practice in Sac City and suddenly took on another job in Council Bluffs. Something seems to have been triggering Shirley and is reflecting in her behaviors. And I don't know if she just really wanted to try to free up some time in dealing with her relationship with Andrew. Because let's face it, she was going to need time to do all the driving that she was going to do. That would probably be my best guess, that she wanted to get rid of this commitment in Sac City so that she could have free time to go back and forth to where Andrew was living in Latrobe. At this time, they're living almost the same distance apart as when he was in Syracuse and she was in Sac City, a little bit closer. From September to November, Shirley has said herself that she had a great deal of time on her hands while waiting for her license and hospital privileges. So to me, she definitely wanted to be able to move about freely without any obligation to her job. At some point during the fall, sometime leading up to October 20th, 2001, Shirley had told Heather that she was pregnant with Andrew's child and that she had an appointment to terminate the pregnancy after a wedding that she and Andrew were set to attend together on October 20th. But the next time Shirley spoke to Heather again, sometime in mid-October of 2001, shortly before that wedding, Shirley told Heather that she had changed her mind, that she was canceling the appointment and keeping the baby. But what Heather didn't know is that during this time when Shirley was telling her that she was pregnant, she actually wasn't. However, when Shirley did come to Pennsylvania to go to that October 20th wedding, she did, in fact, become pregnant by Andrew. I did a conception date calculation based on the date of birth, and those were the exact possible dates. October 20th through the 25th, with the 26th being the technical exact date of conception based on the day that the baby would be born. Now, I'm not completely 100% sure that Shirley got pregnant during the trip for the wedding, but she came back very shortly afterwards, like the same week within days. So it was sometime during the same week. And incidentally, when Shirley told friends in Canada in September of 2000 that she was going to practice medicine in the United States rather than Canada, Shirley has said that one of those friends told her that she needed to get a pistol. This is Shirley's claim. She did not obtain a gun when she arrived in Sac City. There is no record that she had. Nor had she obtained a gun when she moved to Council Bluffs either. However, records indicated that Shirley did obtain a firearm sometime in October of 2001. There does not appear that there was anything that triggered the acquisition of the firearm. There wasn't anything that happened that led her to believe that she needed to protect herself. So if Shirley was worried by the advice that she was supposedly given by that friend, she did live for more than a year in the United States without feeling the need to purchase a gun for personal safety. On October 11, 2001, Shirley purchased a gun permit. Five days later, on October 16th, she purchased an HP-22 Phoenix Arms model semi-automatic 22 caliber handgun with a lockbox for it. 
The gun seller suggested to Shirley that if she really felt like she needed protection, she should get a carry permit, though she never did obtain one. Before Shirley's visit to Pennsylvania for that wedding on October 20th, as well as after that visit, Shirley took firearms lessons. Lessons that included safety, maintenance, and use at a place called the Bullet Hole in Omaha, Nebraska. Which, by the way, is just across the Missouri River that makes up the border between Iowa and Nebraska. Before beginning her lessons, Shirley purchased two boxes of 22 caliber ammunition and brought that ammunition and her gun with her to our first lesson. The brand of ammunition was American Eagle. The instructor said he was not particularly impressed with Shirley's weapon. He said it was of poor quality and it frequently malfunctioned. And one of the things that the gun failed to do properly was feed the ammunition. And as a result, it would eject live rounds, not just empty shell casings. So it was his suggestion that she try some different brands of ammunition. She did try and purchase a different brand called CCI, but the gun still malfunctioned, causing live rounds to continue to be ejected. Shirley would take her third and final lesson at the bullet hole on October 25, 2001, and that would be the same day that she purchased the CCI ammunition. The day after Shirley's final firearm lesson, on October 26, which would be the technical exact date of conception that I calculated, Shirley traveled to see Andrew again, flying out of Omaha into Pittsburgh and then to Arnold Palmer Airport in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where she was met by Andrew. She stayed with him at his apartment until Saturday, November 3rd, 2001. Remember, she was set to start practicing medicine two days later, on Monday, November 5th. This trip is believed to have caused a great deal of emotional turmoil for Shirley, and it has been speculated that she began to think that she was not the only woman Andrew was involved with romantically. Throughout this nine-day visit, Shirley and Andrew argued very loudly, though there was nothing physically violent that occurred. Shirley suspected Andrew had taken an interest in a radiology clerk and a doctor who worked at the hospital at which he was completing his residency. During this October 26th through November 3rd visit, that radiology clerk received two anonymous calls, both made on October 29th. The first call came from Shirley's cell phone around 8.45 in the morning. This call was picked up by this radiology clerk, and the caller, who was female, asked the clerk to go to Latrobe Hospital Library, which she did, but she did not find or see anything, so she went home. By the time she got back to her place, there was a voice message left on her home phone. That call came from Shirley's cell phone also and was made at 9.31 a.m. The caller was the same female voice, and told the clerk to go talk to Andrew about the beautiful blonde doctor that he's been seen at the hospital with. The caller also said that Andrew was the type of man who hurts people. The radiology clerk told Andrew about these calls. Well, Shirley was right. Andrew did have a date with that radiology clerk on November 3rd, 2001, the very day that Shirley's visit to Latrobe ended. And apparently Andrew told Shirley about the date because during that October to November visit, Shirley later said that she began to feel their relationship was evolving into a don't ask, don't tell understanding and that she said it was mutual. But on that morning of November 3rd, when Andrew drove Shirley to the airport, they had breakfast and it was then that he ended their relationship. She flew from Latrobe to Pittsburgh to Omaha. She picked up her car and drove home to Council Bluffs. She arrived at about 6 p.m. on November 3rd, which was a Saturday. On his way home from the airport, Andrew stopped at a drugstore and purchased a box of condoms. 
The condoms themselves were never found. Not on Andrew, not in his wallet, not in his car, not in his apartment. But the box itself, the exact box verified with the lot number that it was the one purchased in Latrobe, would later be found in a trash can in Council Bluffs, Iowa, inside Shirley's apartment. The receipt for the condoms was subsequently found in Andrew's wallet. The next morning after arriving home in Council Bluffs on Sunday, November 4, 2001, Shirley called Andrew, waking him up. He told her that he would call her back later in the morning and again in the afternoon, which he did. At this time, he told Shirley that his planned date with the radiology clerk didn't go as planned because she fell asleep. The second call took place early that Sunday afternoon. Also on that day, Shirley got into her car, a Toyota RAV4, and began the drive from Council Bluffs to Latrobe. With her, she had her 22 caliber gun in its box. This drive is estimated to take about 15 to 16 hours, taking stops and speed limits into consideration. But which route she took is unclear. Shirley did make some calls from her phone a little after 8 p.m., calls that placed her in the Chicago, Illinois area. Then she made another call shortly after 11 p.m., still on the night of Sunday the 4th, and this call placed her in the area of South Bend, Indiana, about 400 miles or 640 kilometers from Latrobe. Monday, November 5th, 2001 was the day that Shirley would have become fully qualified to practice medicine in Council Bluffs and would have been able to start the position that she accepted at that family practice. She'd been waiting since October 1st when she was hired on. Her license went into effect, but she never showed up that day. Shirley called and said she was in bed with a migraine, and that call to call out of work was one of the ones that Shirley made from her phone in the Chicago area to the home of one of the hospital staff members. We know, of course, that this was not the case. Shirley was on her way to Andrew's doorstep. By 5.30 a.m. on Monday, November 5th, 2001, Shirley was in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. She arrived at Andrew's front door. What happened over the course of the next 11 to 12 hours has been based on witness accounts, staff at the hospital where Andrew worked, both in Latrobe and in Salzburg, and from cell phone and internet data records. Two hours after Shirley arrived at Andrew's place, he showed up at work at the Latrobe Hospital around 7.30 that morning. The staff at the hospital reported that Andrew appeared anxious or agitated. He shared with the supervising doctor that Shirley had shown up at his front door uninvited sometime between 5 or 5.30 that morning and that she was angry that he had ended their relationship two days earlier before she flew home to Council Bluffs. He told his supervisor that he agreed to meet with Shirley when he got off work that afternoon, someplace public like a business or a park or a bar but told her it would have to be before 7.30 because he had plans that evening to meet with his supervisor. Andrew's supervisor advised him against meeting with Shirley, but Andrew ultimately did not heed this advice. While Andrew was at work, Shirley was at his apartment, which was across the street from the hospital. She used his phone at his apartment to call Allegiant Health, the group that she was hired to work for, to tell him that she wasn't coming into work that day, as she had told someone else the night before while she was on her drive, that she had a migraine and would be in bed most of the day. She did say that she would be there the following morning for work, Tuesday, November 6th. If Shirley really felt that way, then clearly she had a plan to not be in Pennsylvania for very long at all, especially if she intended to meet with Andrew that afternoon. She'd barely have enough time to make it back. 
and I wondered about that. If Shirley really thought that she was going to do what it was that she intended to do, and then just go straight back to work like nothing happened. At 9.46 a.m. on that Monday morning, November 5th, Shirley used Andrew's computer to connect to the internet, which was still dial-up at the time, to get into her Hotmail account. Later that same day, she went to eBay to check on a bid she made for a doll, which I kind of thought was a little bit creepy, but I don't know what kind of doll it was. It was also sometime during that day, while Shirley was waiting for Andrew at his apartment, that she discovered the box of condoms that he had purchased that Saturday after leaving her at the airport. Shirley took the box, but the condoms themselves were never found. Whether she got rid of them, or if Andrew got rid of them, nobody knows. Also during that day, Andrew and his supervisor went from Latrobe to Salzburg, where they spent time working at the clinic there. Andrew's supervisor left the clinic sometime between 4.30 and 4.45. He was expecting Andrew to be back at his home in Latrobe in about three hours' time, around 7.30, as they had social plans. At about 5 p.m., a nurse saw Andrew leave the clinic. From there, he drove from the clinic to Keystone Park, which is in the direction of Latrobe, and it's about a 30-minute drive. During this drive, Andrew attempted to reach Shirley by phone, as it does not appear that he knew exactly where she was at at this time. He called her cell phone at 520 and again at 526, but neither of those calls were answered. At 527 p.m., Andrew called his home phone, but if Shirley picked it up, it's not known. Andrew's apartment was about 7 miles or 11 kilometers further past Keystone Park. Andrew is believed to have arrived at Keystone Park at sometime between 5.27 and 6.10 p.m. Around the same time, Shirley, too, arrived at the park and their vehicles, his Toyota Corolla and her Toyota RAV4, were parked next to each other in the parking lot of the park. At least one witness walking through the park saw both vehicles next to each other with nobody inside at 6.10 p.m. This witness did not see anyone around or near the vehicles either. Andrew had left his phone in the car. Sometime between 6.10 p.m. and it's estimated to be around 8.30 p.m., whatever transpired between Shirley and Andrew, that meeting would end with Andrew being shot five times in the face, chest, buttocks, and back of the head. The reason the 8.30 end time was estimated is because about three hours later, at 11.26 p.m., Shirley made a phone call from her cell that pinged her location to be near Cleveland, Ohio. And that would be the estimated time she would have needed to have left Latrobe and reached the Cleveland area. She called the home of the nurse in Council Bluffs who worked at Allegiant Health. Shirley told her that she had slept all day at home there in Council Bluffs and was presently driving on an interstate highway so she could drive fast. She told his nurse that she liked driving fast. I don't exactly know what she meant by that. She was probably trying to account for her whereabouts. Shirley also said that she would be coming into work that morning, but not to expect her to be there by 9 a.m. Sometime on the evening of Monday, November 5th, 2001, Andrew's mom, Kathleen, called Shirley's phone, but her call was not answered. Meanwhile, back in Latrobe, Andrew, who had plans to meet with the supervisor at his house at 7.30, never showed up. The following morning, on November 6, 2001, it was frosty outside. The witness who had seen Shirley's and Andrew's cars parked next to each other came walking through the park at about 4.30 in the morning. He saw Andrew's car, but Shirley's was gone. It was still dark out, so he didn't notice anything suspicious. He went about his walk. He was going hunting. Around 5.50 in the morning, 
the sun was rising when another witness, a resident of Latrobe, was making his way through the park. When he got to the parking lot area, he noticed a body laying face down, but slightly turned to one side with a part of the left side of his face exposed near the Toyota Corolla parked there in the lot. It was the frost-covered body of Andrew Bagby. Park rangers were notified, and then they notified the state troopers. And with that, a criminal investigation into Andrew's murder was underway, led by state troopers Michael McElfresh and Randall Gardner. As Andrew was being discovered that frosty morning in Pennsylvania, Shirley was still on the road, making her way back towards Council Bluffs. She did not make it to work at her scheduled time of 9 a.m., so a nurse called her cell phone but received no answer. A message was left that Shirley was scheduled to see her first patient at 10.30 a.m. Shirley returned the call at about 9.48 a.m., possibly 9.52, and she said that she was unable to sleep all night and she could not be there for the 10.30 appointment. She said she needed to go to the car wash and that she needed to shower and change. And this is Shirley buying herself time. And I'm pretty sure that she did need to wash her car and change her clothes and take a shower based on what she'd just done. But she needed to buy the time because she still had quite a distance to go. And this call pinged in the area of Stewart, Iowa, about 90 miles or 144 kilometers from Council Bluffs. At 10.40 a.m., Shirley made another call to a hospital in California where Andrew's mom, Kathleen, worked, but was unable to reach her. She tried again a few minutes later, at which time she did get in touch with Kathleen. She asked her if she had spoken to Andrew, and Kathleen told her that she had not spoken to him since Sunday. This was Tuesday, late morning, so at least a couple of days had passed since Andrew's mom had spoken to him. Shirley told Kathleen that she hadn't spoken to him since she left Latrobe on Saturday, November 3rd to fly home from visiting him and added that she needed to go home and get ready to see a patient at 11.30 that morning. And at that point, Shirley and Kathleen hung up. On Tuesday, November 6, 2001, at 11 a.m., Shirley finally showed up for work in Council Bluffs, and her hair was still wet. During the course of the day, she called Andrew's parents twice, asking if they'd heard from him. Meanwhile, in Keystone Park, the investigation into Andrew's murder was moving along. His cell phone was discovered in his car, and on his person his wallet was found, which is how they were able to identify him. Also found in his wallet was the receipt for those condoms that he had purchased three days earlier. When Andrew was killed, he was wearing hospital scrubs and a jacket. His hospital ID was still hanging around his neck. Next to his body, crime scene investigators found one live bullet that had either been inadvertently dropped or was ejected without having been fired from the gun used to kill Andrew. Five bullets had gone into him. The sixth was the unspent one on the ground. The bullets came from a 22 caliber weapon, and they were CCI brand ammunition. These facts, the unspent bullet being ejected, and the caliber being a 22, lined up with the gun that Shirley had purchased just weeks earlier. She did buy American Eagle ammunition, but she also did purchase CCI ammunition at her third lesson when her instructor suggested that she try a different brand that might stop the ejecting of the unspent cartridge. But it didn't stop that from happening. The gun still ejected those CCI ammunition. This gun would never be recovered. My best guess is that it is lying at the bottom of some body of water, someplace between Pennsylvania 
and Iowa. The ammunition that Shirley would eventually turn over to investigators was the American Eagle brand, not the CCI brand used to murder Andrew. She told investigators that American Eagle was the only ammunition that she owned. We know that that's not true. Andrew's body was taken from Keystone Park and sent over to the coroner for autopsy later that same day, November 6th. The coroner on the case was renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril Wecht, and he came to the obvious conclusion Andrew's death was caused by five gunshot wounds. One to the head, on the right side, in the back, above the top of the spine that exited through his neck. One to the face, entering his right cheek and out the back, top left side of his neck. One to the upper area of the chest, lodging behind his left shoulder bone. One to the buttocks, entering the top of the buttocks and lodging towards the front area of the urinary tract. And one again to the buttocks, lodging in the soft tissue of the upper right thigh. Dr. Weck also found that Andrew suffered a blunt force injury to the top of his head and ruled his death a homicide. Even though it is strongly believed that Andrew was murdered on November 5th, he was legally pronounced dead on November 6th, and that is how it is on state records the day his autopsy was performed. But Andrew's date of death, as far as his family is concerned, is November 5th, 2001. While Andrew's body was on a cold slab in a morgue in Pennsylvania, Shirley was back in Iowa, seeing a total of three patients on that same day, Tuesday, November 6th. Before her workday ended, Shirley became the prime suspect in Andrew Bagby's murder. Investigators had gone over to Latrobe Hospital once Andrew was identified to speak to those who worked with him to see what information could be gathered. They learned from Andrew's supervisor that Shirley had paid Andrew an unexpected visit, showing up at his door early Monday morning. That Andrew had a plan to meet with Shirley at a public place to talk, and then that Andrew failed to show up for their planned get-together at 7.30 that evening. And that supervisor made it clear that Andrew was never late. State Trooper Gardner, upon learning of this visit from Shirley, called her at Allegiant Health, but he did not get a hold of her on his first call. He spoke to another doctor there. Trooper Gardner called back later and managed to get a hold of Shirley. This was still Tuesday, the 6th. He told Shirley that he was going to record the call. As he asked his questions, Shirley was responsive but careful and almost all untruthful. Once Gardner made sure that Shirley acknowledged that she knew who Andrew was, he told her that he was dead. Her response was to ask if he was sure. Twice, she asked, Are you sure? And Trooper Gardner was like, Yes, I'm sure. She responded by saying that she wasn't expecting this. She told him that she last saw Andrew around 12.30 or so on Saturday, November 3rd at the Latrobe Airport as he was seeing her off on their last visit. She said she last spoke to Andrew on Sunday, November 4th when he returned a phone call she'd made to him. Shirley related to the state trooper that she knew that Andrew had a date that Saturday night on the 3rd, but that he was stood up. She insisted that they had not parted on bad terms, but she did admit she did not want to know about this date. They did have a big fight during the nine days or so that she visited him late in October into early November, and that they may have been overheard by neighbors. Despite that, she said there was no physical violence and insisted Andrew would never lay a finger on her. Shirley added that when she left Latrobe, she was happy and that their relationship was passionate. And Trooper Gardner told her 
that her local police and council bluffs were assisting them in their investigation into Andrew's murder, and they would be paying her a visit that evening at her apartment. Shirley reiterated that Andrew gave no indication that anything was wrong when they last spoke, and she provided a detailed account of her movements from her return to Council Bluffs on Saturday, November 3rd, until Tuesday, November 6th. She said she called Andrew from the Omaha airport when she landed on November 3rd. She said she arrived home around 6 p.m. She said she unpacked and went to bed before 8 p.m. The next morning on Sunday the 4th, she called Andrew around 6.30 or 7 in the morning, but she had woken him up. He said he'd call her back, which he did twice. She also called a martial arts instructor that morning to arrange to take a class the following week. She said she visited the Omaha Zoo on Sunday afternoon and then went and got some takeout dinner, came back home to her apartment at 10 p.m. that night. She said she had a migraine, so she went to bed shortly after eating. On Monday, November 5th, Shirley told Gardner that she called in sick when she woke up around 10.30 that morning with a migraine, at which time she took some medications. She said she was home all day by herself and was pretty much out of it. She said that she did not go anywhere on Monday, that she did not leave her apartment until that morning that they were speaking, Tuesday, November 6th, when she finally appeared at work at 11 a.m. with wet hair. We know that this alibi is completely untrue. We know that she was driving to Pennsylvania on Sunday the 4th, arriving there on Monday morning the 5th. She murdered Andrew that same afternoon when he met her at Keystone Park, and then she began the marathon drive home, arriving at work on November 6th at 11 a.m. That last part was the only truth of her alibi. A state trooper would later make the drive from Latrobe to Council Bluffs and came to find it took 15.5 hours, which included an hour for rest stops and gas. Trooper Gardner established that Shirley did own a gun. He asked her, where is the gun now? Shirley said it should be in its little black case. It's like a smaller version of a briefcase, she said and it was in her closet, or in her bedroom, or in her car. She couldn't say with 100% certainty for some reason. And I'm not a gun owner, but I'm pretty sure if I was a gun owner, I would know where my gun was at all times. And I'm also pretty sure that this trooper is not believing Shirley because she is a gun owner, she is a doctor, she's going to know where her gun is at all times. Shirley's playing dumb because she knows she's not going to be able to produce the weapon. Because somewhere between Latrobe and Council Bluffs, she ditched it. Gardner asked Shirley if she carried the gun on her and she said no, that she did not have a carry permit and it would be illegal for her to do so. Gardner told her that he was interested in the gun and asked if she would be willing to turn it into our local police department so they could examine it for them. And Shirley agreed that she would turn the gun over. Gardner continued to ask more about the gun, and Shirley tried to assure him that she was being as honest as she could. He told her that they wanted to examine the gun in Pennsylvania because Andrew had been killed under suspicious circumstances. So Shirley said, I assume from what you're saying is that if Andrew died under suspicious circumstances, with the questions that you are asking me, it sounds like he's been shot. Can you tell me that? And Gardner answered, Well, I think you're an intelligent woman, and I can't tell you any more than I've told you now. As the conversation was winding down, Gardner reminded Shirley that he was going to have her local police speak to her in person, and that he would like her to turn her weapon over to them when they do. Shirley called Trooper Gardner back a few minutes later and told him that the gun was missing, that she didn't know where it was. She said she found the case in her car, and that she usually locks her car, 
and is not aware that her car had been tampered with or broken into. On Tuesday, November 6th, at about 6.50 p.m., Council Bluff Officers Sergeant Jerry Mann and Detective Bob Sellers arrived at Shirley's apartment and spoke with her for about an hour. By this time, Shirley had become the prime and only suspect in Andrew's murder. She waived her rights to remain silent and agreed to speak to police. Most of the questioning centered around Shirley's gun. She explained that she needed a gun for protection when she moved to the United States in the summer of 2000, but procrastinated about getting one until October of 2001, more than a year later. She claimed to have not known where the gun was anymore. She said she last saw it on October 25th, that on that day she had taken it and its box for her lesson at the bullet hole. After the lesson, she put the gun back in its box and placed the box in her car and went home. She said she took the gun out of her car and put it in her closet. Then she went to go look for the gun when police were coming that evening. So she got the box from her closet, opened it, and discovered it was gone. From there, she speculated that the gun must have been stolen from her car because she did not believe that her home had been broken into. But that didn't explain much as far as what point the gun would have been stolen. If she left the bullet hole with the gun in its case, put it in her car, drove home, then put the case in her apartment, when exactly would anyone have had the chance to steal it? They moved on, though, and hit her with the questions that they really wanted answers to. Did she kill Andrew? She said she did not. And if she had any idea, she would say, but she did not. Detective Sellers continued to explain that he gets a lot of cases. And one of the things that he looks for when talking to people is body language. And he told her that he wasn't feeling like she was being forthcoming with everything that she knew. That she doesn't seem to be truthful. Not that he was saying she killed Andrew. Just that she's not telling him everything that she knew. And one of those things was the gun. Where is the gun? Do you know where it is? And she answered that she did not. Shirley was asked about the ammunition. What kind was she using? She said she used American Eagle and produced a box of it for them. The second box she purchased may have been used up in her lessons. The ammunition used to kill Andrew was not the same brand as the one that Shirley turned over to the police officers. They asked her if she purchased rounds when she went to the bullet hole for her lessons. And again, she said no. She used the ones that she produced for them. But again, the detective told her that he was getting the feeling that she wasn't being truthful. But all she said was she didn't know how to say things differently. He told her he was trying to get to the truth. Not that she's a bad person. He isn't saying that at all. Obviously, she's a caring person who would not be a doctor if she wasn't. Nothing really more came of this interview. They wrapped it up around 8 p.m. and left Shirley's apartment. Right after the two investigators left, Shirley called up her gun instructor and told him that her 22 caliber handgun was missing and she wondered why anyone would steal her gun and not the box in which it was stored. Shortly after the Council Bluffs officers met with Shirley, the state troopers, Miguel Fresh and Gardner, made arrangements to travel there themselves to talk to Shirley face-to-face, along with her attorney. But when state troopers arrived in Council Bluff, Shirley canceled their meeting. As to not waste this trip all the way to Iowa, the two state troopers went over and interviewed Shirley's firearms instructor. He did confirm that Shirley used American Eagle ammunition for her first lesson, but the ammunition misfired. So he suggested for her to try another brand. She agreed. And the last time she showed up for a firearms lesson was on October 25th, 2001. On that day, she purchased a different ammunition. The brand, he said, was CCI. 
the same brand used to murder Andrew. Shirley's instructor remembered all of this very well and recalled that the CCI brand also misfired when Shirley used it in her gun during her final lesson. Her instructor told the state trooper that the gun was secondhand, it was a 22 caliber pistol, and this is believed to have been the same weapon used to murder Andrew. The instructor also mentioned that Shirley was scheduled for a gun lesson on Monday, November 5th, but never showed up. And that was the afternoon that Andrew was murdered. Shirley had insisted she was not in Latrobe, Pennsylvania on November 5th and only ever used American Eagle ammunition in her gun, that she did not murder Andrew and did not know where her gun was. However, the following day on Wednesday, November 7th, the day after they spoke to her, Shirley called up a Pennsylvania state trooper and told him that she had given her gun to Andrew. This contradicted everything that she told to the state troopers just the day before and everything that she told to the Council Bluffs police on that same day. She insisted that the gun must have been stolen. Now she's saying she'd given it to Andrew. On November 9th, 2001, State Trooper McElfresh, along with two officers from Council Bluff, executed a search warrant at Shirley's apartment. It was then they discovered in a wastebasket in her bathroom an empty box of condoms, identical in brand and lot number to the box that Andrew purchased on Saturday, November 3rd. That receipt was found in his wallet, but the condoms and its box wasn't found until they found the box in Shirley's apartment. So once police finished their interviews, Shirley began making phone calls, starting on November 7th. One of the people she called was Andrew's former fiance, Heather. At the time, Heather was still a medical student at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. She was asked about this phone call with Shirley, and she remembered it very well. Shirley had called her at about 8.15 or 8.30 on the night of November 7th. She started off with some small talk and then got into thanking her for listening to her as she opened up about her problems that she'd been having with Andrew. And then Shirley got into it. She said she wanted to update Heather on what had happened. The woman had not spoken since before that October 20th wedding when Shirley traveled to Pennsylvania and attended as Andrew's date. Shirley told Heather that she went to the wedding, that all was well, but when she came home, she had a miscarriage and went back to Pennsylvania for support from October 26th through November 3rd. Shirley eventually got to telling Heather that Andrew was dead, and this is how she was made aware of the tragedy. Heather asked Shirley what happened, and she said she was told that Andrew was shot to death in a park. At this point, Shirley received a call on the other line from a state trooper, so she put Heather on hold, took the call, and then came back. Shirley told her that she did not tell police about the miscarriage and she had not told them about the gun she had for protection. But she told Heather that Andrew wanted to borrow the gun until Christmas with a promise that he would help her purchase another one. But then Shirley backtracked and said she didn't mean Christmas, she meant by November. She purchased a plane ticket to Pennsylvania to see him because they were busy over Christmas. Shirley then added she didn't know what to do with the ticket or if she should still go to Pennsylvania. So it's clear here that in this conversation, Shirley is attempting to make up more facts for her alibi. She is saying here that Andrew was going to buy her a gun and that she wanted a nicer gun. But in the meantime, she agreed that Andrew could borrow the gun that she owned and that she took it to him herself. Yeah, she brought that gun to him, all right, didn't she? Anyway, on that same day, November 7th, which is a Wednesday, Shirley called State Trooper Gardner. She had spoken to him twice on the phone the day before, and she made a confession. 
She had not been truthful about the location of her gun. She first said she didn't know where it was. Now she was saying she gave it to Andrew. She didn't say when, though. The next day on Thursday, November 8th, Shirley called Heather again. During this call and a few more that followed, Shirley related that she wanted to call Andrew's parents to tell them that he'd been murdered. Heather suggested that she call and leave a message at Kathleen's place of employment in California and for her to call back. But Shirley never followed through. She did not make that call. This is, you know, three days after the shooting. So I'm not quite clear if his parents know exactly what happened. But I would think that they know by now at least that he's deceased. It's hard to say. Shirley again reiterated to the ex that the last time she saw Andrew was on Sunday, November 3rd at the airport. During these calls from November 8th and the days following, Shirley continued to call Heather and in doing so for some reason insisted on talking about the intimate details of her passionate physical connection with Andrew and insisted that their relationship was intact and ongoing up until the day she left for Iowa on November 3rd. Heather had told Shirley in one of those calls that a memorial service for Andrew, which was scheduled in St. John for November 16th, had been pushed back to November 20th. Heather knew that Shirley was not being truthful with her. She knew from several others that Andrew had told friends who were graduates of Memorial University that before he died, he had broken off the relationship with Shirley. So on November 9th, the same day that Shirley's apartment was searched, she called one of the medical school graduates that was friends with Andrew. He was in Nova Scotia, and he was already aware that Andrew had been murdered. This friend asked Shirley when was the last time she'd seen Andrew, and he was told by her that she saw him on Monday, November 5th. This was the first time that Shirley had admitted to anyone that she saw Andrew on the day that he was murdered. It was in that moment that this friend of Andrew's realized that that was probably the day that he was murdered and he was probably talking to his murderer on the phone. He asked Shirley if she had read the newspaper reports that Andrew had a gun. She said that she had not read the paper and she told him that she did not give a gun to Andrew. So this, again, is another contradiction in many contradictions in Shirley's stories to police and to people in Andrew's circle of friends. Sometime between November 9th and 11th, Shirley made another phone call to Nova Scotia. It was to another Memorial University graduate that was a friend of Andrew's, and she told him that she was the last person to see Andrew in Keystone Park on the evening of the 5th. She said she was standing next to him in the park and gave him her gun. She added that she was aware her apartment was searched and that police had taken a pair of brown boots, some lint, and the dryer lint trap from her apartment, but told him that they failed to take the clothing that she was wearing on November 5th and 6th because they were still on her bed when police left. She next said that she was considering leaving the United States for good. Now, Dreamers, I can't exactly know why Shirley is going around and telling people and placing herself at the scene of the murder, but I think she's trying to appear as being someone who is forthcoming and explaining away her presence at the scene without admitting that she was the one that killed Andrew. But I found it really strange that she keeps coming up with these stories and she keeps planting these little bits and pieces amongst Andrew's friends. Maybe she's trying to get them on her side. Maybe she's looking to rally support. I have no idea, but it is totally strange. So, between November 6th and the 12th, Shirley spoke to a close friend who was also a doctor who lived in South Dakota. They became friends while in medical school. They spoke about Andrew's murder. Later on in a couple weeks' time, Shirley would speak to Andrew's dad, David Bagby, about this friend in South Dakota, 
telling him that her friend offered to take $20 in order to establish a professional relationship between them, then she would not be compelled to testify against Shirley. She told David Bagby this on November 27th. On Monday, November 12th, Shirley Turner left her apartment in Council Bluffs, Iowa. She left behind almost everything that she owned, as well as her Toyota RAV4. She took a cab to the Omaha airport and flew out of the United States and into Toronto, Ontario, Canada. On that November 27th call to David Bagby, the one where she told him that her friend offered to take $20 to become her doctor and wouldn't be compelled to testify against her. In that same call, she also informed him of this, that she's left the country, and this was on the advice of an attorney. This would be the last time Shirley Turner would set foot on American soil. We are going to stop part two of this series here. Stay tuned for part three. We will pick it up from where we left off. The wait will not be long, I promise. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, sweet dreams.